a quick note on today's show before we get started. You may notice us refer to the show as the Infectious Dialogue Podcast. This was our working name before the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. We decided to change the name to the ID Podcast, and if you'd like to learn more about why we did that, please listen to episode zero. If not, enjoy the show. Welcome to Infectious Dialogue, a bi-weekly podcast brought to you by McMaster Medical Students, where listening is the best medicine. I'm your host, Gurinder, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike. That's me. Today, in part two of our episode on cannabis use, we'll be picking up where we left off in our conversation with Dr. Catherine Munn and Jillian Holliday in part one. Dr. Munn is a practicing psychiatrist who, in more recent stages of her career, developed an interest in mental health and substance use in young adults, especially post-secondary students. Jillian is completing her PhD with Dr. Munn in health research methodology at McMaster while working as a nurse at McMaster Children's Hospital inpatient mental health unit. In part one of this episode, we got to hear them talk about the safety of cannabis use and learn about how that's still an ongoing question researchers are trying to solve. If you missed episode one, you can check that out to hear Dr. Munn and Jillian discuss the safety and health implications of cannabis use. Today, Dr. Munn and Jillian will be focusing on the up-to-date and ongoing research being done to help us understand this field better. What are the health implications of cannabis, including cannabis use disorders and mental health disorders, especially among younger users? Yeah, so I think uh, that brings up a really good uh, next point to talk about, um, because you mentioned uh, the developing brain. You mentioned uh, we're more a bit more concerned of populations who are under 25. So I was wondering if maybe you could explain a bit more about why we are concerned about the young adult population um, in terms of cannabis use. Sure. So so maybe I can start, and I'm sure Jillian can, can, can add into that. But I think as Jillian has already outlined, the brain is still developing, and we mm-hmm. know now it's still developing. We used to think like 18 and your brain's developed, but we've <laughs> now discovered that actually your brain continues to develop into your mid-20s, and the endocan- endocannabinoid system along with the brain is also like is p- as part of the brain and also with receptors outside the brain is also continuing to develop over that period. And so we are particularly concerned about the effects of, of cannabis on those parts of the brain that are still developing in addition to other parts of the brain. But particularly in the case, for example, of, of, of mental health, um, we think about sort of the prefrontal cortex, the frontal parts of the brain, those parts of the brain that we, we sort of think of as the governing centers, they, they help us manage what we call executive functions. Mm-hmm. So planning, organizing, motivating, initiating activities, those are the kinds of activities that are governed by the, the prefrontal cortex in the brain and which cannabis appears to have a significant effect on. The other, the other part of the brain that we think a lot about are, as Jillian mentioned, the hippocampus, the amygdala. These are the emotional, uh, often the emotional control centers of the brain and are, have a lot of endocannabinoid receptors in those areas as well. We, want to, we need to think about how are those emotional centers and emotional and social development being impacted by cannabis use in the developing brain? And we suspect that, that and we can see from some early research that certainly mm-hmm. um, the risks of early use are more significant than the risks of use later in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and with respect for cannabis use disorder, so uh, about 3 in 10 adults who use cannabis will develop a cannabis use disorder, but that likelihood increases four to seven times if an individual starts using before 18 years of age. So you're more likely to experience problems from your use or an addiction from cannabis the earlier age you start to use. And there is ongoing research regarding kind of to what magnitude is the brain changing with cannabis use. Um, But we really just have preliminary evidence right now in terms of the specific areas of the brain that may change and how long they change for and how large changes are from cannabis. There is a big study that has recently started in the States called the ABCD study that is including neuroimaging starting with kids at nine years of age and Mm. following kind of through the life course uh, to try to get more at those specifics. But we definitely need kind of those long-term studies to see how does a quote-unquote healthy brain develop versus those that are using cannabis. But that involves following people for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and so something that you mentioned um, both, and I've heard this before, are the risks of you know, mental health issues uh, such as depression and psychosis and schizophrenia as it relates to cannabis use. So I was wondering if maybe you could talk a bit about you know, why, why are we concerned about um, those mental health issues in relation to cannabis use? Yes. So I think, I mean, it's fair to say, and as Jillian alluded to, that um, the likelihood of having a substance use problem is at least doubled among those that have another mental health disorder. Mm. So if you have a mental health disorder, you're more likely to have a substance use disorder. If you have a substance use disorder, you're more likely to develop a mental health disorder. So there's there's this um, co-occurrence, but also uh, we're still working out how those, those interactions between the presence of mental health disorders and the presence of substance use disorders like cannabis uh, use disorders. I think um, I'm going to let Jillian talk because her research really has been very focused in on, on depression and anxiety and suicidal ideation amongst cannabis users. Mm-hmm. So she's she's uh, she can speak very well to those issues. I would just say that I think the evidence is, is most clear in the case of psychosis and the development okay. of schizophrenia. And it is very clear that cannabis, uh, through longi- large epidemiologic and longitudinal studies now, that cannabis does put folks at risk, increased risk, especially young people, at risk of developing psychosis or schizophrenia. When they develop those kinds of symptoms, at times those are reversible, but often they are not. So that we, even when somebody uses cannabis, if they develop psychosis and they stop, some people will return quite quickly even to mm-hmm. baseline and those psychotic symptoms will resolve. So things like hallucinations, delusions, disorganization of thinking. But in other folks, they will not resolve and they don't resolve. Okay. So they can result in permanent uh, changes to thoughts uh, Mm -hmm. and severe thought disorders. So I think psychosis is where we have the most robust evidence, but I'll sort of turn to Jillian in terms of depression and anxiety and suicidal (laughs) thinking. Yeah. Yeah, so like Dr. Munn said, the best evidence is for psychosis, especially in the face of particular genetic risk factors, although there is increased risk even without particular genetic risk markers. Um, The next kind of best evidence is for cannabis preceding the onset or the worsening of depression or suicidal thoughts or behaviors. Uh, For anxiety, it's a bit more mixed in terms of kind of which one is coming first and how strong that relationship is. And it seems to be a bit more nuanced 
nuanced in terms of being anxiety disorder specific. So, for example, with social anxiety disorder, it appears that that happens first, then individuals start using cannabis, potentially for coping purposes, but then that co-occurrence increases an individual's likelihood of developing an cannabis use disorder alongside social anxiety disorder. With more externalizing or uh, behavioral disorders like conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, or ADHD, cannabis usually occurs after those have their onset, but those also have their onset early on in life, like in childhood. And this co-occurrence does seem to be related to uh, more severe problems. Uh, But it does, it's it's a complicated conversation because it depends on the interaction with genetics, with how early does an Mm -hmm. individual start to use, how potent is their product, how frequently are they using, are they using multiple times a day. And we don't really have the actual answers right now as to whether cannabis is causing mental health problems, is a consequence of mental health problems, or whether they're just correlated with similar things. But kind of regardless of which one is coming first, they're consistently Mm co-occurring. And this co-occurrence does seem to be related to more problems. So if you have a cannabis use and a mental health disorder, we can say in general that you will do worse than if you have either alone. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you have mm-hmm. you're experiencing so a lot of social anxiety and you're using cannabis, in general, your outcomes are going to be worse than if you had either a cannabis disorder or social anxiety on its own. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that there's no uh, simple solution, but I guess that's what makes the research so interesting. Mm-hmm. So for cannabis use disorder, aside from the... Uh, effects on the brain and mental health effects. Are there any other long-term effects that people should be aware of? So I think there are, we are still still gaining evidence around mm-hmm. the long-term effects and what we can say are the clear long-term effects of cannabis. I think we are all very eagerly anticipating the results of the ABCD study that Jillian mentioned, because that will be the first longitudinal study that has a good chance of capturing people kids before they started using and then following them in comparison mm-hmm. to other kids who did not start using uh, and following the tr- their trajectory over time to determine what kinds of mental health problems emerge, what kind of brain function and structural problems do we start seeing in those in those kids and how and are they really connected to cannabis or are they connected to some other underlying common risk factor. So for example, we know kids who are exposed to trauma or adverse childhood uh, experiences like a lot of fighting in the home, a parent who's incarcerated, a um, abuse, physical or sexual abuse, they're much more likely to develop uh, cannabis use or other substance use disorders, but also mental health disorders So, and, it's, and other health disorders. So it's very hard to tease those things apart and know what 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 was it that cannabis caused as a longer term effect? Mm-hmm. We do we do know addiction is definitely a, a longer term okay. uh, effect of cannabis, and about one in nine folks that use cannabis will develop an an addiction to cannabis or a cannabis use disorder. So that that I don't. It was three three in ten is the most recent. Oh, three in ten. It is depends. The most... It depends on the the study, but the most recent was three in three ten. Three in ten. So it's, high, it's, 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 <laughs> it's grown it's more higher. addictive in the past <laughs> in the past year. Um, certainly, concerns about um, lung health are always a concern and not our area of expertise. But mm-hmm. um, there are effects on on lung health, and um, we we are still learning more about the effects on lung health in terms of vaping versus smoking. Uh, we used right. to be more mm-hmm. comfortable and, in fact, recommend, recommending vaping as a lower-risk alternative to smoking cannabis. 
that's a little more of a question mark at this point uh, because of the concerns about vaping and how the substance is being vaped, like what's what's being combined with the cannabis in in uh, as it is vaped. Certainly, cognitive impairment. Um, again, we we definitely see short term effects, short term cognitive effects uh, mm-hmm. of cannabis use. Many of which are reverse uh, reversible when and folks. So there's short term effects, but even intermediate effects. We see that if they stop using after um, after a couple of weeks to a month, we can actually see improvement in those same cognitive functions over that time. In terms of longer term effects, uh, we certainly see probable cognitive impairment and we we do see effects on education and employment so those are like indirect Mm. indicators Mm -hmm. that there may be cognitive impairment we can't say for sure that that's how that happens right so the reason Mm -hmm. for someone to drop out of school for example or to lose their job maybe may may be connected to cognitive impairment but it also may be connected to addiction related behaviors which make it hard for them mm-hmm. to do school or work uh certainly but that is a long-term consequence of cannabis use we know they drop out at higher rates they do more poorly academically they're more mm-hmm. uh, likely not to have uh, stable employment or to be underemployed uh, and then the risk of mental health concerns which uh, we've talked a bit about is a longer term effect as well mm-hmm. did i did i miss anything I don't think so. (laughs) I think the other thing to keep in mind, again, is that where our conversations are are far ahead of where our research is. So Mm -hmm. thinking back to even the tobacco advertisements, there's probably a lot that we don't know we don't know. Uh, So there might be more that we just haven't kind of been able to find out yet. In terms of the longer term risks. In terms of the longer term risks Mm -hmm. and effects. But also, again, on the alternative side of the potential benefits. We really have to find out more about those other uh, 498 ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's say, um, you know, a patient walks in and, and they have some concerns about cannabis use. Are there any current interventions or treatments that are available for patients with those concerns? So, yeah, that's 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 a great question. And I think uh, really... We are, again, in the very early stages of identifying effective interventions for for cannabis use um, and cannabis use disorders. We know that, uh, that, that by the time folks come in to seek treatment for cannabis use problems, often it is pretty pretty um, highly evolved and pretty far along. Mm -hmm. So that a lot of the treatment studies from the past are based on folks that had very severe addictions or dependence on cannabis. And now, especially one of the benefits of really of legalization, we hope is that people will feel more comfortable to come in earlier uh, to Mm -hmm. seek help for a cannabis use problem than they would have in the past. I think one of the things before we even jump into treatment that I think would be um, that Julie and I would probably both both say is the importance of having a proper assessment when someone comes okay. in before we leap to treatment. Yes, um, <laughs> That's I a think good point. it's always important to think about how do we actually assess cannabis use. And again, lots of folks don't really know yet in 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 lots of parts of health sciences and 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 addiction and treating professionals, we're not necessarily assessing cannabis use in a in a, in a helpful way. So I think the first thing is just keeping in mind uh, motivational interviewing. That's a particular way of talking to folks about uh, about their use of a substance or their behavioral habits. It's a kind of a non-judgmental, curious stance. 
to talk to people about why they're using, what they might be using for, what are the risks and or benefits that they identify in their use, and do they actually feel like changing their use mm-hmm. right now? And mm-hmm. what's motivating them to change that use? Do they, do they is it because their girlfriend or boyfriend said to them, you really seem to be using that all the time and they're not happy with it? Is it because their mom's giving them a hard time? Is it because <laughs> they lost their job because they were using... The, the assessment, the conversation around cannabis when someone comes into an office or a place to seek out help is really, really important mm-hmm. um, and can sort of make or break whether or not someone can will continue to engage with you in the conversation about that use. So the more kind of open-minded, non-judgmental we can be uh, about cannabis use, the better, because addiction we tend to treat in North American society as a weakness and something to be ashamed about. So people, we mm-hmm. kind of preach the messages that you shouldn't do that. And if you are doing that, you should be ashamed for that. And right. that's a choice that you're making that's problematic for your health. And we, and all you need to do is stop it. That, that's sort of the messages we tend to give people around addictions. So whenever we enter into these conversations, we have to be very aware that those are the messages we tend to give mm-hmm. and to deliberately counteract those. So to be very open, not judgmental, it's not approving of the of the use, but it's not being making people feel worse or shamed right. about their use. So not to deliberate on that point, but I think it's one of those those learning points for a lot of people that we really, um, the assessment's really important. And the other piece of the assessment that's really important is around the assessment of other mental health and health problems. So often in the past, we've had these two systems. We've had the addictions care system and we've had the healthcare system. And like, they don't like to talk to each other or communicate. And so people would go into an addictions care office say, you know, to, to some kind of treatment or assessment, and they would only talk about addictions. And they go into the healthcare office, and they only mm. talk about their health and mental health problems. We know now that that is not the best way to talk about or to treat addictions, because addictions are, are comorbid usually with other mental health and health problems. That would be the norm, not the, not the exception. So we need to have, when we're talking about cannabis and looking, someone's looking for help, we need to talk about all of those things. So, and we need to assess for those. So we need to assess for whether or not they have a co-occurring anxiety problem. Do they have a co-occurring mood problem? Do they have a family history of schizophrenia? Do they have a problem with asthma? You can see that all of those things in the case of cannabis particularly really help to inform what we're advising our, our patients or our clients to, to, to do or um, what kind of encouragement we can give them um, and how high risk it might be for one person will be different depending on their mental health and other health health conditions associated with it. So I think at the very least, we really need to take that non-judgmental stance that um, casting the net wide in terms mm-hmm. of uh, w- like what are the other associated conditions and really finding out for that person, why is it that you are using cannabis? Like what is it that it does for you that keeps taking you back exactly. to it? And sometimes that's like entertainment. And that's that's probably a social. It's social. Thing. My friends mm-hmm. use it, um, and that's something that I do once a month or twice a month. And that that uh, may be a different situation that someone that comes in and says, "I use by myself in my apartment, and I hide it from everyone, and it's to treat mm. my serious depression that I'm also not talking to anyone else about, and it's the only thing that helps, but I'm not getting any other care." 
those situations are very different from one another. Yes. <laughs> and what we're going to recommend to help someone in one versus the other are, are, are entirely different. And understanding, getting into the head of the person who's using and understanding why they're using is probably the biggest clue. I mean, I think that's the most important thing right now. We can talk a little bit about about some of the some of the treatment approaches. Um, there are no pharmacologic treatments. I should okay. start by saying mm-hmm. um, there are no pharmacologic treatments uh, for cannabis use. In alcohol use, we have we do have pharmacologic treatment in the form of of naltrexone. So that's a treatment that can help reduce craving and reduce use of alcohol. That's mm-hmm. quite effective. We still underuse that one as well. Okay. Um, but in the case of cannabis right now, we have no evidence that there's any pharmacologic agent that should be used to treat the cannabis use problem. So then we're really thinking about um, how do we help reduce harm and how do we help uh, people stop through psychological interventions. And um, maybe I'll turn to Jillian, I don't know, in terms of if you want to talk a little bit more about psychological intervention. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so... There's, again, a lot of emerging literature on this. There are studies going on right now for pharmacological interventions, but definitely nothing that's proven to be effective right now. Naltrexone is actually being studied as a potential uh, way to treat it, but again, not effective at this point. So our best available evidence says that the most effective interventions are cognitive behavioral therapy with uh, motivational enhancement therapy, and if those two aren't working together, to add in contingency management. Uh, We also, uh, Dr. Munn and I, alongside some other colleagues, did a systematic review on the effectiveness of brief interventions for cannabis use among emerging adults. Uh, So brief interventions were defined as anything that was one or two sessions long. So fairly short interventions. Some of them were five minutes long in a doctor's office, whereas other ones were like an hour over two weeks with Mm -hmm. a trained counselor. So they were quite different, but fairly brief interventions, mostly taking that motivational interviewing perspective that Dr. Munn talked about. And we did see some signal that it was effective in terms of reducing symptoms of cannabis use disorder, um, but it wasn't uh, necessarily this very large effect size. There weren't very large effect sizes that we did see, um, but there did seem to be some signal that this could be an effective and short-term, not high-resource-intensive way of helping somebody. Um, but again, if an individual requires more than two sessions, we've got those longer-term treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational enhancement therapy, but we definitely do need more research into things that do have larger and more consistent effect sizes. But that's our best available evidence right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe you want to talk, too, about contingency management, what that is? Sure. <laughs> do you want to talk to that uh, one? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I, think, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting is thinking about um, are there ways that we should be looking at replacing a, an, an unhealthy behavior with a healthy behavior? Okay. Mm-hmm. And so some of the approaches are thinking about, so um, c- should we think about getting, you know, helping encourage someone to take, in, take on something like mindfulness meditation or exercise as they also try to... Uh, wean themselves off cannabis. And so are there ways that we can build in other kinds of rewards uh, through other behaviors or other, other, other things? So sometimes it's even so much as, do I just put the money that I was using on cannabis and put it in the jar, and then that's money that I get to spend on something else? Or do we actually reward 
desired behavior through some kind some way of reward whether that's monetary or otherwise there's actually quite a you know there's a growing bodies of evidence about the the effectiveness of those kinds of rewards on people's ability to quit and reduce use um so we we that there's growing interest in that that mm. like the the and looking at some of the economic trade-offs uh that when we choose to use a drug so you know, costs a lot of money to <laughs> to use a drug. And there's lots of interesting research happening at uh, the Peter Boris Center and the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Use on how price points affect whether or not people use and how much they use. So does it matter how much we charge for cannabis, even right. in the public, mm-hmm. even in the even in the um, the legal system, and it turns out it probably it probably matters a lot. Much like tobacco, if we charge a lot for tobacco and we charge a lot of tax, uh, put a lot of tax on tobacco, then we see re- reductions in use. And same with alcohol. Mm-hmm. So these aren't so much what we would call treatments. These are like public health related interventions, kind of prevention at various levels. Sort of whether we call it like universal prevention, which would be to add a tax to uh, cannabis that's being sold in the store or like sort of targeted prevention. Um, so we, we, we want to think not just about treatment on an individual level, but how do we sort of, mm-hmm. how, do we, how do we help the system to support people not to use? And I guess uh, another example of that could be educating in, uh, in high schools and schools. I remember learning about cigarette use growing up. So th- I think that could be something that maybe uh, would be a good initiative. Have you heard about any of initiatives uh, like that? So, I mean, I think that's, again, another growing area is how mm. best do we have these conversations with young people about using cannabis and alcohol? We know from a really some really bad American uh, interventions that we can do this very wrong and mm-hmm. we can actually increase use through our educational interventions when we're not careful. So there was an initiative in the U.S. that was in place for many years that when they actually evaluated it, led to increased use of alcohol, binge drinking. So again, we can't just think that providing information is free of risk. Right. It, we have to think about how do we want to deliver that information and in what way. And then we have to look at the outcomes. Like too often we think, okay, just by talking about cannabis in a, in a classroom setting and telling kids not to use it will actually mean they don't use it. Telling kids not to use it and doing a lot of like fear mongering, like this is going to kill you, you're going to get addicted. That probably doesn't work um, for most things, <laughs> including addiction. Uh, but using a more harm reduction oriented philosophy sort of uh, and and also talking about why people might use and some of the even the conversations we're having today like sort of in mm-hmm. that open non-judgmental way sharing information about the risks of, of cannabis but also some of the reasons why people might use much like we would talk about having sex like you know <laughs> what 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 might you do to keep yourself safe uh what might you you know those are the kinds of ways we probably should be talking mm-hmm. even in the educational system about use but not always permitted to do so. So it depends on, and so I think it's really important to think about how we educate and who we educate and when and measuring that. Okay, amazing. So I think uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This was a really interesting discussion. I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot from this discussion. If there was a take home message that you could kind of share uh, I know it's kind of like uh, thinking on your feet, but if, if you if there was something you'd want your listeners, just kind of like a summary for them to know, what what would you have to say for them? 
Um, probably. So just a couple. I'll, I'll do a couple instead of one take home message. <laughs> um, but one is that cannabis is complicated. Uh, lots of different ingredients, lots of different ways to deliver it. We're just beginning to understand it. Uh, cannabis acts on areas of the brain that are involved in executive functioning, motivation, stress response, how the brain develops. Again, beginning to understand that. And then also that cannabis and mental health concerns are commonly co-occurring. So mm -hmm. regardless of kind of which one's coming first, they seem to be consistently co-occurring and that co-occurrence seems to be related to more problems. So kind of stepping outside of that what's causing what, but just trying to understand who might be at more risk and how can we help them. And I think I would just add to that that Whenever you're hearing information about recreational or medicinal cannabis, you have to think about where that information is coming from and the bias that may be built into the information you're receiving. So it's very much about there's very many sources of poor information and very few sources of good information. Mm -hmm. And we really have to look at where the information is coming from and what the agenda is to determine how helpful or evidence-based it is. And so keep your eyes open for the marketing wizards as they <laughs> convince us that that marijuana is safe and we should all use it. Because I think that's what we're going to increasingly feel mm -hmm. is not necessarily the truth. Well, I think that this uh, we can definitely mark this podcast as part of the good information uh, adding to that side. So thank you again both uh, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to, to come on our show. Um, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. That was a great way to wrap up our two-parter episode. It was really interesting to hear about the research that Dr. Munn, Jillian, and other researchers are doing to contribute to a bigger body of knowledge out there about cannabis use and its connection to mental health disorders. Absolutely, Mike, and especially so when it's being done so close to home here at Mac. Thank you to Dr. Munn and Jillian for joining us for these past two episodes to help us better understand the implications of using cannabis. That brings us to the end of our two-part series about cannabis use. Thank you to Daniel Borens for directing this episode and interviewing Dr. Mun and Jillian. And thank you to his team, Cynthia Chan, Jessica Jung, and Jenny Zhu. Also, a big thank you to Dr. Mun and Jillian for sharing their knowledge. If you're interested in learning more about the research, we've linked some projects about cannabis intervention programs from Dr. Mun and Jillian on our website and social media. From the team here at Infectious Dialogue, thank you for tuning in and join us next time for more stories about medicine and the people who practice it. See you next time.